a Lord Mayor, a President of Congress, a Gunnikora Father in Gaetal Shiastofir Kinohasaram Let me say, dear friends, at the outset how pleased I am to be invited to address you here today. As I listened to my introduction, I indeed felt I am among old friends because it is true I have been a member of a trade union for 49 and a half years. And I would like to thank Brian Camford of NIPSA, your president, for the invitation to speak here this morning. And of course, Patricia King, your general secretary. She and I go back some time together in our previous incarnations. She represented staff in Leinster House, and I was then a member of another division of the Oroctus to that which I now feel. Your movement, with over 700,000 members in over 40 affiliated unions, is Ireland's largest civic society body. And your contribution, dear friends, to the evolution of politics, economy and society in every part of this island has been essential. And looking back at history, it has been emancipatory in so many ways. I'm also pleased to be speaking here in Belfast, and indeed I very much agree with your Lord Mayor, because I am conscious of the importance of this city, Belfast, to the wider Irish and United Kingdom labour movement. With Manchester, Belfast emerged as one of the very earliest industrial cities of the world in which a trade union movement would emerge, face obstacles, and succeed in establishing what is yet the unfinished project of the deepening of the rights of workers. It was in this place that the young James Larkin, the organiser of unionists and nationalists on the dock side, received his formal introduction to Irish politics and the possibly even more complex politics of the Irish labour movement. As President, it has been a privilege to be asked to speak of the role of Lark, Connolly and other trade unionists and particularly of the brave and neglected women trade unionists and their importance to our history in the late 19th and early 20th century. These were themes I addressed very early on in my presidency, for example in the Littleton Lecture on the lockout of 1913, and again when I gave the second Phelan Lecture at the invitation of the International Labour Organisation on the theme of the future of work. As I was preparing my remarks for our meeting. I was struck by how clearly certain aspects of the trade union movement had retained a special place in my memories. The dominant image I recover is of banners and bands and marches and speeches in the public space, great speeches which people would debate upon the way home and some of the phrases which they would make their own as they spoke in different places afterwards. That is a proud tradition, and one thinks of how it has made its way into the hearts of those who were struggling for freedom in their different ways. There are hundreds of songs on the theme of, I'm off to join the Union. Joe Hill, the song of the Swedish-American organiser of the industrial workers of the world, executed after a deplorable trial in 1915, is just one example. And the early trade union organisers, they all realised the importance of culture, of time spent together, 
of music, of sharing of songs, in whose rendering workers completed for excellence. And this is true when we look back at the history of the docks, of the mines, and of the factories. It is part of the symbolic life of a collective that shares values. It is the very antithesis of isolated, extreme individualism. What I have been describing is a powerful tradition, one from which the civil rights movements, the anti-apartheid movement, equal rights movements here and worldwide could call on for support. And it is important that on all parts of this island we acknowledge the role of the trade union movement from its beginnings down to our own times in consistently opposing sectarianism. The trade union... The trade union movement has also been international, an international movement that correctly sees, as Edward Phelan did in his day, for example, in his Harris lecture with John Maynard Keynes in 1931, that migrating unemployment from one setting to another, setting wage levels in competition with each other in a downward cycle, could be disastrous for global economics was simply bad economics. You give a great example of internationalism in your conference these days by organising fringe events, inviting Omar Barghouti, who will speak on the challenge continuing to face Palestine, and Huber Ballesteros of the Colombian trade union movement, whose leaders have been assassinated and whose members have been decimated. Inviting them to your conference is an important act of solidarity. Me gusta mucho Hubert que usted estar aquí, bienvenida a Irlanda. The trade union movement... <laughs> the trade union movement now faces, of course, new challenges. And I want to wish it the same courage as those who have handled us such a fine tradition. These challenges can all be faced, but it will involve revealing and challenging some powerful myths that have been established, myths without empirical evidence, and that can more easily flourish in an era of concentration of ownership in the media, decline in public service broadcasting, and an anti-intellectualism that always served those, serves those who hold unaccountable power as much as it presents and prevents workers knowing the basis for the policy choices that affect their lives. And then to sustain and deepen democracy, to encourage a participation and to have a deliberative democracy, for that to be achieved, all of us as citizens need a new discourse. And that discourse, I believe, must be an inclusive one. We must empower ourselves through a new literacy on matters economic and fiscal, so as to be able not just to critique, criticise, but to expose the basis upon which certain aspects of our global economic life are presented in a curious, I believe medievalist way at times, as somehow or another inevitable. Rather, it seems to me at times, in the manner of those who insisted that the earth was flat and that the sun orbited the earth.
need this new literacy to save language itself, to save conceptual life itself. We need it so as to be able to give real meaning to terms like flexibility, globalisation, productivity, innovation and indeed social protection itself. And at a global level, if we are to achieve success in facing challenges that require global agreement, such as the great events of 2015, responding to climate change, as we agreed in Paris, or moving to sustainable development, as was agreed in New York, we must be free to ask the question and have the courage to insist on an answer. Do those who are drafting policies believe that these projects I have mentioned can be achieved within our existing economic and social models. If they do, what balance do they see between the role of the state accountable to its citizens and some new forms of capital that are not accountable except to those looking for the most short-term speculative profit? If it is the case that they accept different models are necessary, and indeed many scholars, some of the better ones, suggest that little less than a paradigm shift is needed. If necessary, are they willing to acknowledge what is failing, or if that term is unacceptable perhaps, what is inadequate? Will they allow the policy, institutional, intellectual changes that are necessary for new forms to emerge, forms that could combine, as these documents demand, a combination of economics, ethics, and ecological responsibility. Of course, there has been, and I'm afraid it still survives, a belief in certain elite circles that all of this is too complex for ordinary citizens to understand. In present circumstances, this is a kind of offered in a sort of voce form. But many years ago, Friedrich von Hayek was much more explicit. He stated that only a select few could understand the complexity of the market. And further, as he put it, that an atavistic solidarity among the public had the capacity to disrupt the achievement of the total free market. Such thinking is not dead, nor has it gone away. All of the dominating concepts, flexibility, globalization, productivity, innovation, social protection, decent work, they are all capable of being redefined and given a moral meaning and made useful. It is possible, too, to humanize the new technological forms that will emerge, to ensure that science will serve all of the people rather than the few. It is possible to recognize forms of care and voluntary contribution as indeed what they are, some of the most important and finest work in its finest sense. All of the scientific and technological changes, too, are capable of being made citizen-friendly. But all of this requires an informed public. Redefining work itself is, I believe, far more than a distribution issue. And work, labour, is much more than a set of aggregated labour units. It has an importance, too, beyond sustaining the demand curve of the economy, which is now <coughs> concerning some people. Work is how we express the essence of our humanity. And I believe that the role of the trade union movement, through its membership, 
its effect on governments, its influence on policies, on governments of different kinds, and on the International Labour Organization, will have a crucial role in forcing these changes. And I urge the ILO to be more active in seeking the vindication of what has been agreed. The union movement, too, will be crucial in restoring a recognition of what has been called the role of the entrepreneurial state in partnership with private investment and civil society. The days of making the case in the media for the minimal state are over, and its consequences are everywhere to be seen. The idea that the state is a fallback position for the banking sector or that the state should reduce its intervention to save its citizens is simply must be recognised by citizens as something they cannot afford in present and future circumstances. Exposing the myth that only the private sector takes risks and that the state cannot ever take, should not take or does not take risks is extremely important. It is also inaccurate. It requires an even greater importance as decisions have to be taken now in relation to science, technology, research and development policy. <coughs> and what people know is that, of course, the state has always been taking long-term risks, and that's the difference between the risks it takes between long-term and the short-term risks of speculative capital in its new international financialized form. I think this has been brilliantly dealt with by writers such as Professor Mariana Mazzucato in the revised version of her work, The Entrepreneurial State, which came out in 2015. Let me just give you one quotation, the last paragraph of her book. Professor Mazzucato writes, We live in an era in which the state is being cut back. Public services are being outsourced, state budgets are being slashed, and fear rather than courage is determining many national strategies. Much of this change is being done in the name of rendering, rendering markets more competitive, more dynamic. This book is an open call to change the way we talk about the state, its role in the economy, and the images and ideas we use to describe that role. Only then can we begin to build the kind of society we want to live in, and want our children to live in, in a manner that pushes aside false myths about the state and recognises how it can, when mission-driven and organised in a dynamic way, solve problems as complex as putting a man on the moon, <coughs> solving climate change. And we need the courage to insist, through both vision and specific policy instruments, that the growth that ensues from the underlying investment be not only smart, but also inclusive. And that work of Professor Masakatis has been regarded as one of the most important serious academic contributions of the last five years. The truth is, it has long been public investment that has created the infrastructure for the many corporate entries into the market in so many areas. The state's role in taking and undergirding long-term risk is in stark contrast with the pressure put on governments to eliminate risk for those who are interested in simply short-term gains. And again, one might ask, is it not a noble aspiration 
that every child, girl or boy, would be able to have access to all such education as is necessary for their human development. I've often asked myself, but more, more frequently recently, that if this be so, should the state that provides such opportunities not unreasonably, is it unreasonable to expect that the early tax yield in such employment as it is made possible by state-assisted qualification should not accrue to the providing state so as to enable its yield to be recycled and create the capacity of universal education of ever more high-class skills. And if you don't do it like that, you're not speaking of an intellectual subsidy to many of the economies who do not realise the significance of the state investment. That is a speculative opinion of my own. <laughs> of one thing I'm certain, the contribution of the trade union movement in facing these challenges is absolutely essential for the discourse I speak of, the discourse that we need for new times. I've seen your conference agenda the themes that you are to discuss, and I want to congratulate you on them. They are inclusive. You will debate what is to be done, how work is to be defined and protected, how the state must not be a minimal state, confined, as I have said, to saving the financial sector, but rather be enabled to respond to the needs of its citizens. When I go to meetings over my lifetime, and I have done so so often, be it on global poverty, on climate change, on sustainable development. The audience always includes, and you can always see it there, a significant attendance from trade unions. They engage with these issues. This stems from what I believe is the inherent generosity of trade union solidarity. And yes, as I was introduced, I remember that early piece of mine on the Galway docks in 1969 where 58 able-bodied dockers divided their income among the 72 docker families who needed it, many of whom had been injured at the dock site itself. So I would like to think then, when I read and I hear, I would like to suggest to members of the trade union movement that the social pillar, which Jan-Claude Juncker, President of the European Commission, has announced, he has announced that he wishes to sign off on it this year at the highest level, before the end of the year. And of course it will be of immense importance. But this initiative which is suggested, it will deal with issues, I'm told, of cohesion, upskilling, reduction of inequality and related poverty. But would it not be all the more effective if it incorporated social, economic and cultural rights, and that that was a dominant perspective? I think. It is a fact, and one must deal with facts. Such an inclusion, such an influence on the social pillar has been resisted until now by the Council of Ministers of the European Union, and more particularly by those who advise them. They are there. It is unfortunate that Jan-Claude Juncker decided to offer his views on the social pillar, which I believe is necessary, he described its putative success as requiring a triple-A rating, which is an unfortunate use of language, <laughs> given where that has been used before and the misery it unleashed in the world. That phrase is one that will resonate with all those who remember the dishonesty and the fraud associated with such a phrase, mm. which de visited devastation 
on so many people in so many countries. Let me end by considering just one other word that is coming into general usage, the word populism. If you are to critique the word populism, its rather loose usage at the present time should concern all of us. We should remember that it is capable of a benign as well as a malign usage. The phrase was used to describe the response to the New Deal in the United States in its day. It was used again in making the case for the National Health Service. E.P. Thompson has used it and critiqued it in relation to the food rights of the 18th century. It was used in describing the national housing scheme which emerged in the United Kingdom. I think then, too, let us never forget, and particularly before a tribute is made to tomorrow to Simone Weil and such as I, the malign use of populism. We must never forget it. Drawing on hate, ignorance, fear, and genocidal impulses, our European history has a form of populism at the darkest part of its heart. Now, thankfully, the tide of populism that we're experiencing now has not yet reached either the level or the ferocity of the populism that erupted across Europe in the 1930s. And whatever the short-term appeal of the simplistic solutions, I feel certain that it will not again reach such a level. And the people who will resist it always will be the members of the trade union movement working without borders. And I think the people of Europe know only too well the price that would be paid for such a resurrection. But in any of the forms populism is most often founded, it really is an aggregation of insecurities, be they economic, social or racial. As an economy creates high levels of unemployment, as a quasi-constitutional set of fiscal constraints takes precedence over social cohesion or infrastructural investment, New opportunities for predators of the intellectual life of the young and the old take advantage of the devastation caused by mistaken, empirically untested economic policies. Each and all of these exclusions I mention are being, can in fact be addressed, and they can be addressed within a shared prudence, and something I know too within the necessary courtesies of discourse that is the hallmark of trade unions. And if a flexibility is allowed that emphasises social cohesion as a primary value in, the, value in the language of politics, we are beginning to make a shift in the right direction. Social cohesion is the primary aim, at the, should be the primary aim in Europe at the present time. Dear friends, come to the end. Trade unions are collective. There is a culture that goes with collective civil organisations, a strength that comes from membership, from what is shared, as a value beyond the self. We must recognise that while the new technology can enable us to transmit information to more people, the collective sense of what is shared is still important. And as we introduce a new campaign for fiscal and economic literacy, we are given new opportunities to draw and celebrate and reinvigorate that collective sense. A new movement, 700,000 members in 40 trade unions, is discussing these issues I know. 
And I'm well aware you're doing so in an atmosphere of distorted communication frequently, <coughs> of the concentration of media ownership I mentioned earlier, of a declining extension of public service broadcasting that is more and more being put under threat, of a culture that is encouraging, too, a dangerous level of aggression in arguments or discussions about economic policy or outcomes. All this may be true, but let us be positive. The embracing by the young people of England of the opportunity to vote, the rise of indigenous movements with a traditional respect for the earth, Tierra Madre, the greater involvement of women, the evidence of not just tolerance for difference, but its recognition as a necessary element of justice. All this gives us hope. I often feel like asking some of the audiences I address, what would life have been like without the trade union movement? It's appropriate that all our young people ask that question. In contemporary terms, we can ask, how extensive would the precariat be then, a precariat that is emerging as a feature of a dualistic economy that can offer huge salaries at one end and total insecurity and a life below frugality at the other? Yours, dear friends, is a great tradition. Yours is a powerful, emancipatory, genuinely progressive force capable of engaging all these challenges and bringing what is struggling to be born, not only here but in the world, into being. And in all of this, and as President of Ireland, Marukran Heren, I wish you well. Be'er banat on Tawakil.